Good morning. I want to welcome any visitors might be here. Um, we usually um, are in a study of a book, Hosea. We've been in the book of Hosea. But um, on the concert nights and that, we kind of suspend it because we do the balance of Sunday morning in depth and then at night and verse by verse. So we're going to be looking at a uh, um, different topic this morning. But I would encourage you on the statement of faith. It is abbreviated there in the back of the bulletin, and it gives you basically, you know, what we believe in terms of inerrancy and resurrection, stuff like that. But uh, the more in-depth ones, that, that you understand exactly what it is that we believe very specifically, uh, particularly when it comes to uh, marriage and what the Bible speaks about very, very clearly. We very clearly state, and with not any apologies or anything, that we believe in, in one genetic female and male for marriage and all that so that we don't go along with the political correctness at all, okay? So we go by the scriptures, what the Bible says, and that's what we believe. And you should understand if that's what you believe, that's why you come here. So it's very specific. Get them online, or you can get those. Uh, some of you that are old school, you know, you don't like online, whatever, the whole thing's printed out. And so this, we understand exactly what we believe. And uh, what we believe is exactly what the Bible teaches. That's not the norm today. It's not the norm. Everybody wants to interpret God. And uh, well, we're just going to just keep on doing the same thing and let the ships fall where it may. And so we'll see what God has. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your grace your goodness. Give us wisdom and knowledge, Lord, as we look to you and your word. And Lord, we pray that you would just speak to our hearts this morning, Lord. Father, for those over the internet. And Lord, we pray for the radio broadcast, Lord, that we start on Sunday nights or through the week at night, Lord. You would just uh, use it for your glory. Use it for just uh, the people would hear the gospel, Lord, and that they'd be instructed. And so, Lord, we just pray your hand blessing upon the things that we believe you're directing and guiding as we have in the past, as you have guided, directed, and provided for us in a way that is just beyond question of your goodness. And certainly, Lord, we, uh, we look to you alone. And so, Lord, speak to us now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Open to any of the Gospels, because we're going to be using the Gospel. Matthew, Mark, or Luke towards the end, if you want. Uh, the message entitled, The Thief on the Cross. Uh, what an incredible picture is given to us uh, by these two thieves. We're going to focus on the one more than the other. But Jesus has been hanging on the cross as... Um, the rulers sneered at him, the soldiers mocked him, and the crowds blasted him. Yet his first saying from the cross was prayer for the forgiveness of his enemies, addressing the Father. That says everything about the cross. The very heart of what the gospel is, the very heart of being the church, and I'm not talking about a building, is forgiveness. You can't ever bypass that. And it must be forgiveness according to the scriptures, how the Bible says that. And so it's very important that we understand what the scriptures teach. A life of, of many individuals who come to Christ happens in different ways, at different times, with different methods. God will... Um, Use every situation of life, whatever it may be, to turn you to the gospel, to allow you to see your sinfulness that you might repent from uh, Jesus Christ. There are some who will be saved from in their youth. Their lives will be fruitful, and God will use that as evidence of God's power in their life, and, and God will use that to save many. Then there are others who will spend the majority of their life lost. Uh, and then the radical change is so extreme that those who have known him for all those years, God will use to impact their life. And God will save them. And then there are others who are saved in the 11th hour, as we'll see here with one of the two thieves on the cross. Who, um, for the most part, they have lived a lost life. Uh, and, and lost, you can be wealthy, you can be moral, ethical, successful. The world think you're the most popular, but be lost. Lost means you don't know Jesus Christ. You don't serve him. You've not repented from your sin. 
You see, when we look from heaven's perspective, it's one thing. When you look at it from the earthly perspective, we define it totally different, which is contrary to the Lord. And so the traditional second saying of Jesus from the cross, the dress of the thieves here, on the cross, particularly the one, in response to his petition to repentance. And um, it is he that we want to uh, study as he is portrayed in three ways as we look at the three Gospels, synoptic, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And many times people try to say, well, there's contradictions. The three Gospels, synoptic, and even we can pick John's, it's not a synoptic, but we can pick some things. It's like four corners of an accident. And uh, a policeman comes on the scene and he takes a report from each person that was in each corner. And then as he takes those details and the witness of what they saw, if he examines them, they would very, very clearly seem to be contradictory at times. But they're not. They're complementary. As you examine them all and put them all, you will get a perfect picture of what really happened. Not just what this guy saw here in the south uh, north corner, whatever. Again, from the four directions. As you put them together, you know exactly what took place. This is what the Gospels are all about. So they're not contradiction. So we will use um, uh, Matthew 27, Mark 15, and Luke 23. And uh, we'll, we'll look at the whole passage there. But let me give you three hooks to hang your thoughts on as we examine this man. Um, as a, He is portrayed in three ways by the Gospel writers. First, the condemned criminal about to die. That's the first picture. Second, we have the convicted criminal about his sin. Because he's not up there because he's a good guy. And then thirdly, the contrite criminal about to enter eternity. Those are the three ways that he's described. So let's begin with the condemned criminal about to die. You find this in, uh, in the three gospels. We'll point out the different passages. Um, First, the two criminals reviled Jesus from the cross. This is very evident as you read all three Gospels. Both were criminals of the worst kind. Matthew 27, 44 and Mark 15, 32 tell us very, very clearly of the worst kind. So these are not just guys that made a mistake. These are not just guys that kind of just made the wrong decision. These are career criminals. And they were crucified, one on the right hand, the other on the left. Very clearly, Matthew 27, 38, Mark 15, 28 and Luke 23, 33. So, two criminals, left and right hand of Jesus. Both of them um, have been uh, commanded to die by crucifixion. Now, both could have been part of Barabbas' insurrection, as you read all three Gospels. If so, then Barabbas, who was released, um, would have been dying with them. Because he would have been sentenced with them. Jesus took his place. So in, real, in reality, Jesus is personally dying for Barabbas, the worst of the three. Wow. And if so, these two had attempted to overthrow Rome very clearly by the charges as you examine the trial of Jesus with Pilate. Now, both were to be public examples to all who would dare to raise their hand against Rome in any way. The Romans were very, very efficient and proficient in ruling people. Crucifixion was used to strike terror in the hearts of people as they came into a Roman city, particularly a, 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 a big one. As they lined the roads with crucified criminals, whether it be on trees or actual crosses, either the, just the top pole or both of them, and... Um, it was invented by the Carthaginians, the crucifixion. It's passed to the Persians and it's perfected by the Romans. Crucifixion was uh, reserved only for the worst of criminals and no Roman would ever be crucified. Only for non-Romans. Crucifixion was of the most horrific, um, cruel way of putting someone to death, lasting sometimes three to four days. Birds would feed off of you as you're on the cross there. Your joints literally would be disjointed from each other because you would be crucified through below the wrist. So this way you wouldn't tear, wouldn't be the hand. Uh, there would be a little seed you can rest a little on. Your, your feet would be overlapped and nailed so that you would have some support to push up so you can breathe before you collapse down. Ultimately, you would suffocate to death. It's the most horrific way of dying. 
Now, the two criminals reviled Jesus in the way that the others did at the crucifixion, we are told, uh, through the three Gospels. In Matthew 27, 39, And those who passed by blasphemed him and wagging their heads. It's a form of disgust. Looking up, you're blaspheming, and then you're going. You as parents have done that with your kids. They do something that's so dumb, you say, <laughs> you know, you're just, what is in your head? You're not thinking, oh, my little child, he's just so nice. I just love to hug him right now. No. They're disgusted with Jesus. In Matthew 24, 40, he says, And you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself if you are the Son of God. Come down from the cross. This is in mockery. You're saying you're this great Messiah. Let's see you come down now. Likewise, the chief priests and also uh, mocked and the scribes and the elders, they said in verse 43 of, of, um, of Luke 27, uh, or to 42, he says, uh, he himself um, cannot save. He saved others. If he is the king of the Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. So in other words, just come on down and you know, we'll demonstra- you'll demonstrate that you are able to save others. And so it's all taunting. It's all um, kind of like I told you so he's not the Messiah. And, you know, here you shut your mouth off all this time. And now here you are. There, there's nothing behind it but hatred and animosity towards him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he, is, uh, if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. Matthew twenty-seven forty-three. If God will have him. Whoa. The Gospel of Luke adds the fact that the soldiers were mocking him, coming and offering him wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Luke 23, 36 and 37. Mark and Matthew affirmed this. Quite a picture. Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. The one that was being offered for the sins of the world. And yet you know he could have come down, but he did not. D.L. Moody said one of the greatest mistakes he ever made occurred on October the 8th of 1871. On that night, he addressed the largest crowd he ever spoke in Chicago. And his message dealt with the trial of Jesus in Pilate's Hall. And he was based upon the text, What then shall you do with Jesus? And he concluded his sermon by saying, I wish you would take this text home with you and seriously consider it. And next Sunday... We will speak on the cross and we will decide what we should do with Jesus. Speaking of this incident later, Moody called it the tragic error and one of the greatest mistakes of my life for I never saw that congregation again. You see, when the sermon finished, he asked Sankey to sing. Today the Savior calls, almost prophetically, the third verse ran, Today the Savior calls for refuge fly. The storm of justice fills and death is nigh. It was that last song in the hall while Chicago fire claimed a thousand of those lives. Never to hear the gospel again. I want you to go home and consider this and come back. We'll discuss it. Listen to me. You don't know if you'll be here the next minute. No one does. All men and women stand condemned before God as a thief on the cross, both of them. This is not the mindset of the world today, especially some of you that are young. Your peers, your educators, they believe you're good. I believe you're good for nothing. That's what the Bible says. So we live in a very strange America today. I'm not talking about the world, though that's true. I'm talking about America. All are sinners and child of wrath by nature, disobedient, Ephesians 2, 1 and 2 says. All of them. All fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3, 23 says. All who have, uh, have not the Son have not the Father, and the wrath of God abides in them, John three thirty six. Those are some heavy statements. Now, either you believe in and agree with God, or you think God is wrong. Which one is it? 
If you agree with God, then there's hope for you. If you disagree with God, you're hopeless. You may be moral, you may be rich, you may be well-educated, you may be doing well on earth. But earth is very, very temporary. (laughs) What you do here will mount to zero in heaven. Absolutely zero. Nothing wrong with hard work, nothing wrong with being moral, nothing wrong with being ethical, but you don't get into heaven because of that. All of mankind has reviled God both in word and in deed. The heart of man is deceitful, desperately wicked, Jeremiah 79 says. Now your educators, your philosophers, your scientists all think that man is good. That, you know, there's goodness in us. That we have a good heart. Well, how do we explain war? How do we explain lying, cheating? How, how do we explain the treacherous things we do to each other? The best of men and women have broken God's law. There's none righteous, no, not one, the scripture says, who understand or seek God. Romans 3, 10 through 11. But once again, our culture and our educational systems and all say that man is good. And he seeks God because they look at religion and the millions of religions. But religion is one step away from God. It's not a step towards God. We shape God in our own image, our own likeness, according to our own beliefs of life and philosophy. And then we don't even follow those. (laughs) It's a step away from God, not towards God. All of mankind have sinned against God more than any person will ever sin against them. And we don't see this. Somehow this generation has bought into the thing that they are the victims. So they've moved from victims to absolute militant entitlement. You owe me. You need to give to me. I don't think so. You need to work. You need to work your way through life. A person begins to sin. And that day when his conscience becomes alive. Five, six, seven, everybody's different. You know right from wrong. But if you think about it, look at the smallest of baby. They start to crawl, you know, or walk and they can't, they're up against the table and you got some knickknacks there and they touch and you go, no, and And then they look at you and they go, why do they look at you? They have a conscience. They know right and wrong. But the problem is that ongoing acting against your conscience calluses our conscience. So what bothered me at the first time doesn't bother me at the tenth time anymore. It's life as usual. When I um, competed in high school and in university and gymnastics, my hands were callous completely. I hardly feel anything. Just big layers of calluses. That's what happens to our heart and our conscience. We do this once, two, ten, ten thousand, ten million times. What's the problem? Nothing wrong with it. So Romans says that by conscious creation and history without excuse, let alone salvation. That's general revelation, creation, conscious history. Special revelation is the gospel. That's how you get saved. A person sins and, and moves on in severe manners. As they enter their teen years, they sin much more and in greater degree. Much more also into their adult life. And all of a sudden, it becomes a habit of life with very, very few convictions. All means all without exception. The entire world is guilty before God, Romans 3.19 says. The entire world deserves death. The wages of sin is death, Romans 3.23. 
All of it. This was the condemned criminal about to die. He's a sinner. He's lost. He's depraved. He's under God's wrath. And he's on his way to hell. Wow. What a dark, dark picture. That's a picture of every human being on earth that doesn't know Jesus Christ as personal Lord and Savior. Secondly, we see the convicted criminal about his sin. And we have this in Luke 23, 39 through 41 as our text. And in verse 39, the one criminal hanging from the cross continued to revile Jesus. Okay? Because remember, this is from the morning to about three in the evening. Okay? You're talking about six hours and everything. The word blaspheme there, uh, it tells us that he blasphemed Jesus. It means to speak evil or reproachful of someone. But the context makes it more serious in view of who he's speaking reproachfully about. This is God. This is the Son of God. Jesus is 100% God, 100% man. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. God was the Word. The Word became flesh and we beheld His glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John 1, 1 and 14. He didn't think of robbery to be equal with God, but He emptied Himself of His glory, not His deity. Philippians 2, 5, on down. Took on the form of a servant. Was obedient to the death of the cross, all the way to verse 11. For this reason, the name has been given to Him above every other name. This is the name of Jesus. Every knee shall bow. Confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. 100% God. 100% man. The Lord Jesus himself asked the Jews. You say I blaspheme because I said I am the son of God in John 10, 36. Now often people say, where did Jesus say he's God? I could show you all kinds, but that's one of them. The disciples say it often. First John 5. Uh, I believe around 20-something it says, uh, and he is the true and living God. If Jesus is not God, then he's the biggest liar that's ever existed. Which one is it? <laughs> now the exact words are recorded for us in verse 39. If you are the Christ, and Christ is the title for Messiah, save yourself and us. Wow. So they're hearing these things the crowds are saying. And so they pick up on it too. He was repeating what the crowds and the priests and the scribes and the elders and the soldiers were saying. For the most part, ladies and gentlemen, the human race are quacking ducks. We would love to think we're leaders. Majority of us aren't. We follow. You know why a river meanders? It's looking for the softest soil. When a river has a lot of power, it cuts straight through everything. But it meanders because it's looking for the softest soil to make its way through. The majority of the human race just follows. Doesn't want to be confronted, doesn't want to be opposed, doesn't just kind of just flow with the program. Very few people will stand alone. So he's repeating these things he's hearing. Today, one of the biggest problems of our nation is that the younger generation is simply repeating like quacking ducks the lies and the indoctrination that's being pushed through our educational system and politicians without thinking through what they're saying. If they follow the thought through, it's a pretty scary end result. Now, he also could read the plaque over the head of Jesus. So he's hearing, he's seeing. This is the king of the Jews, written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin, all three languages, Luke 23, 38, for all to be able to read. Now, he's hearing, and he's looking at him. He says, okay, king of the Jews, but king of the Jews, why are you hanging there if you're king? You think he didn't think this? Of course he did. <laughs> See, I lost all fear of good conscience and of God through his progressive life of sin that was never checked or turned from. This is what sin does. It destroys. 
Oh, sin is attractive. Never. If a Christian ever tells you sin is not attractive, it's not fun, they're lying. Sin's a blast. At first. But it catches up. Sin is destructive from the first time we commit it. As pleasurable, as enjoyable as it may seem at the time, afterwards, you feel and you understand and you will witness the destruction on your life without exception. You can explain it away. You can rationalize it. You can blame others. You can do whatever you want. It doesn't matter. It's yours. And it will mark you for life. Unchecked sin destroys our conscience. Proverbs 29.1 says, um, He who is often rebuked and hardens his neck will suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy. We've all known people that are warned by their parents or friends, and they just keep going, keep going, and it's one thing after the other. And finally one day you read, you know, you, you got shot last night. Or whatever. And, and, and you know that sooner or later something horrible is going to happen. The other criminal hanging on the cross confronted the one blaspheming, blaspheming Jesus now in verse 40. So here they are. Both of them are doing the same thing, but then one of them all of a sudden sees something. That the other does not. The word but marks a sharp contrast between the two in verse 40 there. And the criminal rebuked the other from the cross that he was hanging on. So they're both hanging there. They're both equally guilty. And he rebukes the one. The word rebukes means to censor severely, to admonish, or to uh, uh, charge sharply. Now, I'm sure they knew each other. (laughs) They're both hanging up there for the same crime. The same word is used by Michael the archangel when he said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, disputing over the body of Moses in the um, little book of Jude 1 chapter verse 9. Same word. The words of the criminal are recorded for us. Listen to him in verse 40. Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? Now he was doing the same thing before. All of a sudden, there's a change. When you can reflect on your sin, when you can look at it and look to God for it, then that's evidence that God has initiated His direction on your life to let you see your condition of life. That's His mercy, His grace. He turns on the light as you hear the gospel for you to see who you really are, how bad off you really are, And if you want to do something about it, God's mercy. He charged him of having a void of God in his heart and mind. He charged him with his shameless blasphemy in view of that he would be judged by the God he did not fear. Which, by the way, was Jesus. (laughs) He's a judge of all men. Then in verse 41, the one criminal hanging from the cross distinguishes the two of them from Jesus through personal conviction. In verse 41, he says that both of them deserve what they received. And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. You and I, we were criminals. We've lived like this all our life. We, 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 we deserve all this. He acknowledged the guilt of both of them and he acknowledged the just punishment um, handed down to them. But he says that Jesus was nothing like them. But this man has done nothing wrong. The word but again marks a sharp contrast between Jesus and both of them. The man Jesus was innocent, guilty of nothing, fitting the punishment. If you really look at the cross, the most unjust 
penalty was passed on Jesus. The greatest crime was ever, that was ever committed was against Jesus because he was absolutely holy. Every one of us deserved punishment. Jesus did not. The only thing that can be concluded from this, these statements is that this man had been exposed to the gospel and the ministry of Jesus prior to this to assert that Jesus had done nothing wrong. He could have been one of the ones on the Sermon on the Mount. He could have been the one in the crowd that Jesus fed. He could have been just a one passing by as Jesus walked with his disciples. He could have been a regular following the ministry of Jesus. We don't know. But he had enough information as he looked at Jesus, he knew that he didn't belong there. That he did nothing wrong. According to the Boston Globe, on the night of her death, Cassie's brother Chris found a poem Cassie had written just two days prior to her death. You remember in Columbine, Colorado, the shooting. It reads as follows. Quote, now I have given up on everything else. I have found it to be the only way to really know Christ and to experience the mighty power that brought him back to life again and to find out what it means to suffer and to die with him. So whatever it takes, I will be one who lives in the fresh and newness of life of those who are alive from the dead. End of quote. Convicted by one's own depravity will bring about godly conviction. Now, she says she would die with Christ first. If you don't die with Christ first, you'll never die for Christ. To die with Christ is daily. As those things confront us that offend us, those things that people that offend us, or whatever it may be, things that are done for us. He has listened to Jesus say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. In other words, it's not that they didn't know that they were nailing those things through his wrists here, those nails. It doesn't mean they didn't know that they were mocking him and and just doing cruel things to him. They didn't know the consequences, the ramifications of their sin. Just like a young person, a young lady, maybe she gets pregnant. She doesn't, she goes, oh, I know it's going to be. The, she, she has no idea of the consequences, the heaviness, how her sin will affect her, the baby, family, everybody. That's just an illustration. You can take that on any sort of sin. No one sins to themselves. It affects everybody. The only sin that is not forgiven in this world or the world to come is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Matthew twelve thirty one. The sin of blasphemy is something that often people freak out about and they ask me, they say, I think I've committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And I just very calmly tell them, you haven't. They go, how do you know? Because if you had blasphemed the Holy Spirit, you wouldn't be concerned about it. You wouldn't be talking to me. And you certainly wouldn't be in church. That's when God gives you up. And the last thing on your mind is going to be God. Or that you have blasphemed. Can it happen during this life? I believe it can. Jesus says it's not forgiven in this world and the world to come. What's the world to come? The millennial kingdom. So it can be committed also in the millennial kingdom. That's an ongoing rejection of Jesus Christ at the time and the point where you die without repentance. It's a grieving, 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 grieving of the Spirit of God as His loving kindness is trying to turn you from your sin. Simple.
The result of blasphemy is the giving up. But see, when you give up your last breath, it's the separation of your spirit from your body. That's physical death. But spiritual death is the separation of your spirit from God for all eternity. That's how the Bible defines it. When a person dies, they give up their breath, the last breath, and their spirit is eternally separated from God. What you've chosen to live for in this life is permanently honored in the next life. So the physical death is your, the least of your problems and mine if we're Christians. If you're not a Christian, it's, it's the worst thing you've ever even imagined. Now, Jesus spoke more about hell than he did about heaven, as you know. He didn't do that just to try to scare us. He did it because he doesn't want you to go there. He wants to warn you. It's not a nice place. And by the way, you might have some bad theology. Satan doesn't run hell. Jesus does. It's a place of punishment. Okay? Jesus runs hell. He's holy. <laughs> Those in hell have rejected and blasphemed him. Okay? And if you were to ask any person right now that's in hell, was it worth it? They would say absolutely not. Every person in hell right now is a believer. They believe in God. They believe in the Bible. They believe what Jesus said, but it cannot help them now. Oh, you Christians are so morbid. So be it. It's the truth. Jesus said it. Now, either he's a liar or he's telling you the truth. Say and be, not a difficult test. There's no C, D, or F. There are many in life who are confronted by others in their blasphemous words and statements against God. But to no avail. Some damn the name of God due to tragedies that happen in their life, illnesses, or maybe their son or daughter dies, and they say, why did God allow this? Why does God do this to me? Well, we live in a fallen world and everything we see around us is the result of sin, what Adam did. This is not what God intended. And many times they don't know or serve God, but they want God to be responsible for them and their life for the good while living as they wish. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, what responsibility does he have towards you? Now, he's merciful. He says he lets the, the, the rain fall on the just and the unjust. He provides food for you. He gives you good health so you can work. That's mercy. But outside of that, he has no responsibility. If you're living for yourself, if you don't have Jesus Lord and Savior, what responsibility does he have towards you? You've told him to stay out of your life. You told him to mind his own business. So he honors your words. But then we want to hang on. And accuse them of all the things that we bring on ourselves. They fail to realize that the very God they are bitter about and speak against is so patient towards them and so merciful. Not recognizing that the goodness of God leads them to repentance, as Romans 2 forces. It's the goodness of God. Because God should smoke every one of us. <laughs> I mean, do you know how often... A person sins just five minutes after being awake. My Lord. If you ever want a picture of patience, it has to be God. Because he's the epitome of holiness. The reason Jesus went to the cross was to die in the place of sinners. Jesus told his disciples that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many in Matthew 20, 28. Jesus was made sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him in 2 Corinthians five twenty one. So he literally became sin for us, died in my place. And if Barabbas is the one who was released, then Jesus really took the place of Barabbas, which is the worst of all three of them. Wow. Where are you going to find a man like that on earth? Nowhere. 
all who acknowledge and believe that Jesus was the propitiation for their sins and that of the whole world can be saved, 1 John 2, 2. The word propitiation has to do with the Hebrew aspect of sacrifice as that which satisfied the demands of God. An animal would be brought spotless and the man would present it before the priest and when John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God which takes away the sins of the world, every Jew was schooled through a history of 2,000 years that that animal, this blood was a token for atonement upon the altar. And he would bring that animal and present it before the priest and the priest would examine it and it's already been passed and then he would tie it to the pole and he would lay his hands on the head symbolically transferring his sin to the animal. And then he would take a knife and cut the throat of that animal and blood would go all over and the animal would hit the ground. And he would look down and realize, that animal died in my place. I deserve that death. Behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sins of the world. Wow. This was the convicted criminal about his sin. He has seen it. The Lord has initiated. Turn that light on. He sees clearly who he is. A sinner. Who Jesus is. But he's got to make a decision. Jesus doesn't make that decision for him. Jesus doesn't force him. Now God always initiates. But we are the ones that make the decision. So thirdly, we have the contrite criminal about to enter eternity in Luke 23, 44 and 43. In verse 42, the criminal hanging on the cross turns to Jesus and calls on him for salvation. He calls Jesus Lord, kurios, meaning master, owner of that person. The word was used for Caesar, for Caesar worship. Every person was to burn a pinch of incense once a year in Rome as their allegiance to Caesar. Caesar was a form of worship, deified. And after that, the individual could go worship anything or anyone as long as they didn't create any trouble for Rome. Well, the Christian could never do that because they could never say Caesar is Lord. So many of them died. By the way, this still happens in other countries. We always keep you up with what's going on in Iran. Through this whole craziness, do you realize that more Muslims are being saved in Iran than anywhere else? Gospels are being taken back into Bibles, into Iran, via Turkey. <laughs> And these Muslims are being saved and they're going back to evangelize their own people knowing that they will be in prison or even die. You don't have to look to the first century church for evidence of true commitment. You just have to look for true Christians. Notice he, by implication... And direct confession in the previous verse acknowledge and confess his sins then. He saw himself as a sinner, he confessed his sins. He saw himself in need of forgiveness. He cast himself entirely on the words of Jesus. His faith was genuine, contrary to what he saw and heard, not allowing the crowd to influence him. His faith was genuine, preceding the miraculous signs of the darkness at 12 noon. The veil being rent. The confession of the centurion. It was simply based on the gospel. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God, Romans ten seventeen. You certainly couldn't say, well, you know, he was just kind of caught up in the moment. He was elated. He was just joyous. Really? He's on the cross. He responded to the illumination 
of God's goodness. He made a decision on it. He made his petition. Listen, listen to his petition. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. That's a prayer. <laughs> he had heard Jesus praying to the Father to forgive his enemies, his executioners, as Jesus hung on the cross between both of the thieves in Luke 23, 33 down to 34. I mean, you talk about everything hitting this guy. I mean, and both of them were equally distant. Both of them had equal access. Both of them were seeing and hearing the same thing. Two different people. 42 years ago, I heard the gospel. Many of my friends heard it with me. I got saved. Many of them didn't. It was a personal choice. He was able to read the plaque again. Jesus, King of the Jews. Now you remember that the Jews weren't happy about that. In fact, Pilate did it to snub them because he knew they had set him up. So he says, fine. He says, don't say he's king of the Jews. Say he said he's king of the Jews. What I've written, I've written. He says, you got me and I'm going to get you. Welcome to humanity. <laughs> he believed that the kingdom of God was real and in the midst. He had to change your heart. There's a million miles, ladies and gentlemen, between your brain and your heart. You can know facts, but to live facts, that's a whole different thing. Would you believe you live? And would you believe slightly and you believe you can get away with? Then you live differently. <laughs> you push it. All of us do. The criminal notice in verse 43 Hanging on the cross, receive salvation then. Evident by the, the three things he heard from Jesus. All we have is a text to examine, to conclude what went on here. The authority was that of God. Listen to the words, assuredly I say to you. Jesus said, I say. As in his three-year ministry, he never quoted any authority to prompt any validity or truthfulness for his words he often says you have heard that it has been said especially the Sermon on the Mount but I say to you you and I quote people Jesus never quoted anybody and when he quoted that other people quoted other people he said I say to you you believe these guys you listen to these guys well let me tell you what I say to you and often he did that correcting because those men were wrong. Jesus professed his proclamation by the word assuredly. In the old King James, you read verily, verily. Some of your translations say surely, surely, or assuredly, depending what it is. It's the same word. It's a mark of authority, trustworthiness. If you put it in the beginning of the sentence, it's the word amen. It means listen carefully what I'm about to say is true, valid, and of the greatest importance. You put it at the end of the sentence, the same word in the Greek, then it means it's true. It affirms it. That's all it says. And when it's at the beginning, it, it, it's, you pay attention. This is nothing to play with. Jesus pronounced with an absolute guarantee what he was saying. Now, the promise of hope, secondly, was very specific. He says, today you will be with me. This is the base on which he repented. The words of Jesus, the authority, and here, today you will be with me. The promise was that that very day, today, being emphatic, would mark an absolute period of time in contrast to the Jewish mind regarding the Father's kingdom in the age to come. And indicating a transition of economy from the old to the new. In the Old Testament, we knew that when men died, both believer and non-believer, they went to one place called Sheol. We didn't know anything about it. We just knew they both went there. It isn't until Jesus speaks in Luke 16 with the beggar and Lazarus that he says that Sheol was divided into two compartments. On the one side were those who died in faith, being comforted, the ones on the other, 
those who died apart from faith being in torment. And so we get a glimpse into Sheol in the New Testament. It's called Hades, either way. But he by faith here believed that Jesus had a kingdom, though it was not visible. In spite of the circumstances, he took the words of Jesus and believed them as genuine and authoritative. The promise was to be with Jesus. Jesus assured him of his petition, giving him living hope. But he only has a little life left. (laughs) But even at the very end, he has living hope. Jesus assured him of his sins being forgiven, resulting in fellowship with God. When he says, today you will be with me in paradise, absolutely implies and guarantees and assures that he confessed his sins and they were forgiven because without confession, without forgiveness, you cannot be with Jesus. Are we clear on that? Okay? If I regard iniquity in my heart, God does not hear me. Psalm 66, 18. God's hand is not short. His ears heavy not, his ears not heavy. They cannot hear you, uh, save you. But your sins have separated you from God. Wow. So the implication is very clear here. Jesus answered him of a complete dependence upon him. All the way. Now notice the place of his comfort was to be in paradise, the place of privilege. The last pain that this man would experience would be the breaking of his legs. And they would do that to hasten death. So it wouldn't last many days. And then, of course, they couldn't push up on their feet or hold themselves up. So they would end up suffocating. Um, Luke 19.32 tells us that they broke his legs. Now, the word paradise is a Persian word that signifies uh, a royal garden, a park enclosed with all the amenities of, 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 of beauty and plants. And a king would have it. And he would invite those that he chose to fellowship with him and they would come into that garden and they would just spend time together. That's the word, the origin. No one else would walk with him except those that he allowed to come in. Now the gospel of Luke provides for us the abode of the dead, as I said in Luke 16, and it shows us and it calls it the bosom of Abraham, paradise. Okay? The place of comfort. So at this point, Jesus is dying. When he dies, he descends to the lowest part, and we'll see. And he preaches the gospel in 1 Peter 3, 19-21 to those down there, both those who are in comfort and those who are in torment. And he scoops up those who died in faith and he takes them to heaven. Ephesians chapter 4, 9 on down tells us that. Colossians 2, 14 says he spoiled principalities and powers. They couldn't stop him from doing that. And so Paul the Apostle tells us in 2 Corinthians 12 that now paradise is in heaven. He was caught up to the third heaven, paradise. And I heard things that are not lawful to be repeated. So now... Sheol or Hades is only one compartment for all those who die without Christ. They are sent there in torment until the white throne judgment. The minute a Christian dies, he's instantly present before the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 8. Paul says, for me to live as Christ and die as gain. All right? What an incredible thing is he's hanging there. He's a criminal. He's turned his life to Jesus and he's guaranteed paradise. Ty Cobb, that old um, time great who played 3,033 games and for 12 years led the American League in batting average. For four years, he um, batted over 400. On his deathbed, July 17, 1961, he accepted Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. And he said this, and I'm quoting him, quote, You tell the boys, I'm sorry it was the last part of the ninth that I came to know Christ. I wish it had taken place in the first half of the first. A lost life. As nice a guy he might have been, as popular as he was, 
at that point at his deathbed, he knew it was a wasted life. He wished it would have happened earlier. The provisions for being saved have been made. All that is needed is for individuals to respond to the gospel. God has chosen the most incredible way to be saved and no one can glory, the proclamation of the gospel. This is what's lacking in America. This is why America is in the shape it's in. Because we have allowed the proclamation of evolution, of believing in yourself, rather than the gospel that says that we're sinners in need of Christ. That's why our nation is where it is. The nation began with the belief in God. It doesn't mean our nation was ever a Christian nation, but certainly our documents, our Constitution, our Bill of Rights, the Federalist Papers, every monument in Washington, the money you have in your pocket, coins and paper money, says in God we trust. That's the God of the Bible that's talking about. Well, documents speak about that. The scriptures and the monuments speak about the God of the Bible. Oh, foolish Galatians, little, real stupid Galatians, who has bewitched you? Having begun in the spirit, are you now going to be made perfect in the flesh? The nation began in the spirit. It's ending in the flesh. Flesh destroys everything. We've moved away from our roots, from our origin, from our constitution, if you will. So as Hosea say, we've stoned to the wind, we've reaped the whirlwind, the storm wind. It's destructive. You can't plant mint plant. <laughs> it's a plant from hell. Don't put it in your garden. And then expect to have roses. It'll take everything over. You cannot kill mint plant. <laughs> Smells great. You can use it for anything. But man, it'll tear up your garden. Man is a sinner by nature and condemned with God's wrath over him. Uh, Isaiah 64, 6, it says that our righteousness is as filthy rags. And there's only one translation of the Bible that translated literally. And you're going to blow your mind which one it is. A Jehovah Witness Bible. Your righteousness is filthy as a menstrual garment. That's your righteousness. It's not something you present to the people that come visit you. Something you get rid of very discreet and privately. You see, we have a choice of believing what the Bible says about me or what I and mankind say about me. Paul told the Romans, but what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made to salvation. Romans 10, 8 through 10. How will they hear if a preacher is not sent? You see, today we've got a lot of comedians behind the pulpit. Got a lot of people telling nice little stories. But we have very little exposition of the, of the text of the Bible. Warning people. Pleading with people. Instructing the saints to build them up in the faith. It's all about how big buildings we can have and how beautiful they can be and all this kind of stuff. And, and people are having a great time going to hell. Peter says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some man counts slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Second Peter 2.9 So God is so patient that to accuse him of being impatient is really a horrible sin. Because it's goodness that leads us to repentance. 
the prayer of the criminal known as the thief on the cross was assured by Jesus of his salvation and teaches us some very important truths then. First, the thief is a picture of those who are accepted by God in the 11th hour, plucked as a branch out of the fire. In the nick of time. Now, having said that, I personally do not believe that 11th hour conversions are many or the rule. I believe they're the exception. I believe that men and women die the way they live for the most part. Everybody wants to live like the devil and die like a saint. Doesn't happen, ladies and gentlemen. More lies are spoken at funerals than anywhere else in the world. They know the guy's a dog and they eulogize him as a saint. That's mankind. Let God be true and every man a liar, the scripture says. Second, the thief on the cross is a warning to those who would pass up the opportunity to accept Christ hearing the gospel. Whether it be your first time, and it could very well be your last time. No one knows. Third, the thief reminds all men of the mercy and grace of God that is extended to the vilest of sinners through faith and repentance. This guy was the worst of criminals. Let me remind you that Paul killed Christians, arrested Christians, caused Christians to blaspheme. And God forgave him. Because he acknowledged the sin, he abandoned the sin, and he lived for Christ. Fourth, the thief on the cross is a picture of a wasted life without Christ. I don't care how successful you are. I don't care how good of a neighbor Sam you are. If you don't have Jesus, you're wasting your life. You may be doing a lot of social good. You may be the greatest husband and wife. But a life without Christ is a wasted life. Fifth, the thief on the cross, literally both of them, are a picture of two men having equal opportunity to be saved before entering eternity. Equally distant from Jesus, they cannot blame God. They are responsible where they spend eternity. It always has been and always will be. If God chooses who spends eternity with him and who doesn't, on his own, while all of them deserve hell, then God would violate his own holiness, his own goodness. Because not one is righteous. Not one seeks after God. So if God, if you take election and predestination to the extreme and say God chose only a few while damning the rest, well, my question to you is all of them deserve hell. So how do you justify the holiness of God then? When God pulls you up in the judgment of the white throne judgment, says, why did you not accept me? And if I believe what I just said, I say, because you predestined me to go to hell. You didn't choose me. Then God would be responsible for my sin as well as my lostness, right? But God didn't do that. God paid the price of sin for the whole world that each individual must choose. And they're responsible when he pulls them up and judges them a white throne judgment and says, why did you not receive me as your Lord and Savior? Every one of them will have to say, because I chose not to. God's holiness is justified. His judgment has justified everything. See, either God is responsible for your sin or you are. Which way you want it? 
My Bible says you and I are responsible for our sin. The one who rejects and enters into eternity separated, separated from God and is damned. No second chances. The one who repents is eternally in fellowship with God. Now what about you? Where will you spend eternity? With Jesus or separated from him? The choice is yours here on earth. This was the contrite criminal about to enter eternity. Maybe next time you read uh, this passage, you might remember the thief on the cross in these three ways. The condemned criminal about to die. The convicted criminal about his sin. And the contrite criminal about to enter eternity. What made the difference? His response to the gospel. What the gospel said about Jesus Christ. Who he is. What he did. What he promises. Night and day. And it's for eternity. Father, thank you for your grace, your love. Deal with our hearts. We pray for everyone here, Lord. We pray you would be glorified as you minister to them. And Lord, those that don't know you, even over the internet, that they would open their heart to you and call on your name. If you see yourself as lost, according to the gospel, if you see yourself under the wrath of God because you've never repented, then today is the day of salvation, not tomorrow. Repentance is the way to come to Christ, acknowledging your sin, asking to forgive you, and by him giving you a new heart, a new mind, a new life, you can abandon sin. So this is your prayer of repentance if you want to be born again. Not to us, but to Jesus Christ. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you. As my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.